Hey everyone, welcome back to episode two of Unraveling Medical Coding. I'm your host, Neil Sheth. Today, my dad, Dr. Piyush Sheth, and I will focus on outpatient office coding for new and established patients. This does not include office consultation coding, which will be discussed in a future podcast episode. So dad, new guidelines were implemented this year. Why was that needed? Well, the original documentation guidelines from 1995 and 1997 from CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, laid out a blueprint for selecting a coding level of service based on the amount of documentation of three elements, history, physical exam, and medical decision-making. The more bullets you hit in each of the elements, the higher level of service you could bill at. For example, A level three billing code required a detailed history, a detailed physical exam, and a low level of risk for medical decision-making. In instances where counseling and coordination of care took more than 50% of the time for the office visit, providers could use time instead of the three elements to select a billing code. The criticism from office-based providers was that documentation was too burdensome. Patients over paperwork, an initiative of CMS, led to a significant overhaul of the billing code requirements for office and other outpatient services and went into effect on January 1st, 2021. The goal was to reduce documentation requirements, allow for time effort recognition, and to better reflect the current practice of medicine by reducing burdensome regulations that impede a clinician's ability to spend time with patients. The new guidelines were developed by the American Medical Association with approval by CMS and rely on either total time or medical decision-making to be used in billing code selection. Although a history and physical exam should be documented, these only need to be medically appropriate and that is a determination made by the provider. So what do you make of the simplified history and physical exam requirements where you as a provider determine medical appropriateness? For most providers, this will lead to easier and less burdensome documentation for office visits. However, there are situations where a provider may still need to document a rather comprehensive history and physical examination. If a physician evaluates a patient in the office, and schedules that patient for a surgical procedure, there may be certain documentation requirements mandated by credentialing or regulatory agencies that would have to be followed. For example, if I see a patient in the office for an umbilical hernia, according to the current documentation guidelines, I would only have to document the following. Patient presents with a mass at the umbilicus causing pain. On examination, he has a reducible, mildly tendered umbilical hernia. Plan is to proceed with laparoscopic umbilical hernia repair with mesh under general anesthesia, and I discuss the risks with the patient, and he wishes to proceed. However, most hospital medical staff bylaws require a full history and physical exam be documented prior to a major surgery, and those bylaws usually list out all the requirements such as a heart-lung exam prior to a major surgery. The Joint Commission, as well, 
also requires that medical history and physical examination should be relevant and include sufficient information necessary to provide care, treatment, and services required to address the patient's condition, planned care, and assess needs. A history and physical must be completed and entered into the medical record for any high-risk procedure, surgical procedure, and any procedure that involves anesthesia services. So in this example, you can see how the documentation guidelines can seem to be at odds with certain regulatory requirements. That's pretty interesting. So let's talk about selecting a billing level code. You said that this could be done using total time or by medical decision-making. Can you explain further? Yes. Selecting a billing level can be done by total time or medical decision-making. I'll talk about total time first, since it's the easiest to discuss. In the past, total time was defined as only face-to-face -face time with the patient. The new definition for total time includes both face-to-face -face time and non-face-to-face -face time spent by the billing provider on the day of the encounter. The new definition excludes time for activities performed by clinical staff. Let's break this down. Face-to-face -face time is the time you are with the patient performing the medically appropriate history and physical exam and any discussions with the patient, their family, guardian, or caregiver. Non-face-to-face -face time is time spent preparing for the visit, such as looking through the patient chart to gather information, reviewing or entering data into the medical record, ordering tests or medications or other services, reviewing or interpreting test results, or referring, communicating, and or coordinating with other healthcare providers. You cannot, however, include time that your clinical staff spends performing other activities, such as taking vital signs or scheduling surgery. Also, you cannot include time you spend on another day performing any of the above tasks. It must be time spent on the same day of encounter. Each billing level code has an associated time range. Okay, that definitely sounds easier than the previous method and seems to be more practical. What about using medical decision-making instead to select a billing level? This is a little trickier, but in my practice, I almost always use medical decision-making when selecting a billing level. Medical decision-making is broken up into three elements, problems, data, and risk. Let's look closer at each of these three elements. Element one, problems, refers to the number and complexity of problems addressed. Problems can be self-limited or minor, acute, chronic, a new problem undiagnosed with uncertain prognosis, or an illness that poses a threat to life or bodily function in the near term if not treated. Acute problems are further subdivided into uncomplicated with systemic symptoms or complicated. Chronic problems are also further subdivided into stable with exacerbation, progression, or treatment side effects or with severe exacerbation, progression, or treatment side effects. An example of a self-limited or minor problem would be a pimple. A new problem undiagnosed with uncertain prognosis would be diarrhea of unknown etiology. 
Unfortunately, there are no nationally published databases stratifying medical problems into these categories. So for the most part, we use medical judgment. Element two, data, refers to the amount and complexity of data reviewed or analyzed. It deals with ordering tests, review of test results, review of external notes, assessment requiring an independent historian, such as a parent or guardian, independent interpretation of tests performed by another provider, or discussion of test interpretation or management with another provider. The final element, risk, refers to the risk of complication or morbidity or mortality from patient management, diagnostic testing, or treatment. For example, management of prescription drugs is considered a moderate risk, whereas a decision regarding major surgery with patient or procedural risk factors is considered a high risk. When selecting a billing level based on medical decision-making, you only need two of three elements. You would obviously want to use the two elements that minimally qualify for the highest billing level. Well, that definitely seems a lot more complicated than using total time. So why do you mostly use medical decision-making in your practice? Well, Neil, total time is hard to accurately document. In fact, your documentation should reflect the tasks you performed during the time you are claiming. You might be documenting in the patient's electronic medical record chart when you are interrupted by a phone call that is unrelated to that patient's management, or you are called away to see another patient before you return to the patient's chart to complete your documentation. It is difficult to calculate total time unless you wear a stopwatch. Now imagine seeing three patients at the same time in the office. Do you really want three stopwatches that you are constantly trying to manage? How are you going to document what tasks you performed? What if you are busy and don't get a chance to review labs and x-rays until later in the day? What if you don't get a chance to document on the same day? The time method seems highly fallible and prone to abuse. One can imagine a scenario where a provider can easily claim more time was spent than was actually spent and it would be difficult to audit this. I personally feel that the medical decision-making method for coding and billing is more accurate as well as being easier to audit. Once you practice with the medical decision-making method, it becomes intuitive. Are there any other pitfalls in using the new documentation guidelines? Unfortunately, there are many other pitfalls when you read the fine print in the guidelines. I'll give you two examples. In the first example, let's zero in on the medical decision-making element two, data. When you order a test on one day, it includes the subsequent review of test results for that order. If I see a patient on Monday and order a hemoglobin level and then see the patient back on Wednesday to review the test results, I can only take credit on one of those days for the data element. I cannot take credit on both of those days. Now, another example is the definition of a chronic stable problem for element one. The fine print in the guidelines includes the following statement. A patient that is not at their treatment goal is not stable. Even if the condition has not changed and there is no short-term threat to life or bodily function. As an example, 
a patient with persistently poorly controlled blood pressure for whom better control is a goal is not stable, even if the blood pressures are not changing and the patient is asymptomatic. This patient would then be classified under chronic problem with exacerbation, progression, or treatment side effects, which bills at a level four billing code. But a patient with poorly controlled blood pressure is not really an exacerbation, progression, or treatment side effect. Yeah, that seems pretty confusing. What can providers and coders do to overcome this and make sure they're not really making any mistakes like those that you just talked about? There really is only one way. Providers need to spend time learning the new guidelines and read the fine print. It is tedious, but in many ways it is simpler than the previous guidelines. To put things in perspective, the new guidelines are in a 16-page document. The 1995 and 1997 documentation guidelines combined were a 95-page document. So as this is implemented, what's your take on how the guidelines will affect the economics of healthcare? When using the 1995 and 1997 guidelines, the bell curve distribution of billing code usage usually centered around level three codes. Since January, I have been following the guidelines and have seen my curve shift towards higher level codes. I suspect that office-based physicians will see a similar shift, and this will mean that our healthcare system will have higher expenditures. Only time will tell how that will affect our economy. Well, I'm eager to see if you're proven correct. Thanks, Dad, for explaining outpatient office coding. For our listeners, check out the show notes of the podcast where you'll find a link to the AMA website with the new guidelines. Stay safe and healthy. Unraveling Medical Coding is a production of Coding Solutions, LLC. 